Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Good morning. It's good to hear you guys all chatting it up. Glad you're here this morning. My name is Becca Stewart, if we don't know each other, and I serve as the pastor of spiritual formation here at DCC. And we are officially in transition mode. It's the end of summer uh, rhythms. Kids are headed back to school. At least my kids headed back to school this last week. And even here at DCC, we are beginning to shift gears a bit. If you don't know, this morning, it's our kind of official fall kickoff for DCC kids. Um, And... Right, it means that the teaching season is making a shift again. If you've been with us the last several weeks or in the past, because we do this every single year, we've had our summer series where we brought in a number of guest teachers uh, just to be able to hear from some different voices. But this morning, we are returning to the book of Luke. Um, Early in 2022, we began working our way kind of slowly through the entire gospel, and we still have a ways to go, but we're headed back there this morning. Uh, But before we do, I want to make a quick plug. I know Amanda mentioned something about the women's retreat this morning, which I'm signed up for and I'm excited for. Um, But I did want to say something, too, about the peacemaking pathway. Uh, If you have not heard about this before, this is something we did last fall and last spring, and we're doing it again this fall. Um, It's eight weeks long. It's starting kind of later kind of towards the end of September. However, the registration is open, and this thing tends to fill up quick. So the very quick snapshot, and we can answer more questions later if you're curious, but this is an eight-week kind of experiential, um, like I say that to mean, this isn't a big lecture thing, like we'll give you a little content, but it's a lot of dialogue, it's a lot of experiential like prayer practices. Essentially, we bring together spiritual formation and advocacy and helping us to think about what it means to be an everyday peacemaker. So Amanda Lum and Dave Newhousel and I help lead and facilitate that. And we would love those eight weeks on Sunday evenings, by the way, um, to get to know you and to have you get to know us and each other. This is actually a really good space to get to know some other people if you're looking for some greater connection here. So if you want to talk more about it afterwards, I'd love to answer questions. Or I think Amanda, maybe Dave, will be back in that participate area and would love to tell you how to sign up, etc. So, okay. Well, if you can remember, we last left off in Luke chapter 5. Are you coming to do something about my mic? No. Okay. Not to put you on the spot, Dan. (laughs) Okay. Great. (laughs) 
back to the teaching. If you can remember, we last left off in Luke chapter 5. Uh, Scott Opplinger was actually here in June and taught on the calling of Jesus' disciple, Levi. And maybe you weren't here, or if we're honest, it's probably a bit fuzzy at this point for most of us. So let me give you a quick recap. Uh, Jesus had just finished healing a paralyzed man. Do you remember the guy whose like, friends lowered him through the roof? Well, as Jesus was leaving that place, he noticed Levi, a tax collector, sitting at his tax booth, and he says to him, follow me. And the gospel tells us that Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. And then immediately turned around and threw a party for Jesus at his house that included a bunch of his tax collector buddies. Now, tax collecting was one of the most reviled professions in ancient Judaism. They were viewed as sinners by trade, known for the ways in which they would lie, cheat, and even steal from the poorest among the people. As a Jew, stepping into this profession was essentially an act of betrayal, and as a result, they were excommunicated from the synagogue. So maybe it should be no surprise that Levi would be the kind of guy who would turn around and throw a party. And I imagine there being plenty of food and booze enjoyed by these disreputable characters. And guess what? Jesus not only invited this guy to be his disciple, he is there participating with him. And this is where this whole scene unfolds. The ones where the Pharisees and the teachers of the law become a bit uncomfortable. And they, bend, they begin complaining to Jesus' disciples, asking, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Well, apparently Jesus hears the question because he answers them himself by saying, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So this is where we show up today. In Luke chapter 5, we pick up right here. And it seems that the Pharisees did not get the answer or the reaction they wanted. And so they continue to question Jesus. So if you would like to follow along, I'm going to be reading in Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise they will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say, the old is better. Okay, so we already know that Jesus was eating and drinking with sinners, but apparently his disciples were also not fasting as much as others did. And these Pharisees and teachers of the law want to know why. Now in Torah, there were six days each year where a fast was commanded. However, many religious leaders in Jesus' day were adding to this, including John the Baptist. They were adding additional days as a sign of their devotion and godliness. But apparently, Jesus' disciples weren't among them. Now, perhaps these religious leaders really do want the specific reasoning around fasting practices. 
But when you consider both of these questions together, why do you eat and drink with sinners, and why don't your disciples fast like the others? What they really seem to be kind of poking around at, as one commentator put it, is the maintenance of group boundaries through the prescription of acceptable practices. In other words, what they're really asking is, who's in and who's out, what's right and what's wrong? Now, just when you had written off those annoying Pharisees as self-righteous, passive aggressors, you realize that their questions actually kind of resonate. I mean, hey Jesus, the world is a bit wonky right now, and there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of disagreements, and at times some weird stuff happening in your name. And it would be super helpful if you could just really clearly define how this whole thing works. Who's in and who's out, what's right and what's wrong. And I think if we're honest, not unlike the Pharisees here, what we typically really mean is, hey Jesus, could you just validate how we have defined those boundaries and how we have deemed acceptable? Okay, great, thanks Jesus. So how does Jesus respond to this? He begins talking about a bridegroom and then some fabric and then wineskins. If you're anything like me, I read this passage about 10 times before I could finally just admit, I don't get it. If I am looking for some very clearly defined answers from Jesus, he is just not giving it here. As it turns out, clearly defined answers were never really his MO. In the Gospels, Jesus asks over 300 questions. He's asked 183 questions, and he only answers less than 10. If Jesus is asked a question, he's much more likely to give an indirect answer than a direct one. In fact, for every time Jesus answers a question directly, he responds indirectly more than 20 times. These indirect responses often take the form of a question, right? Like he'll ask a question back. Or he might tell a parable or a story, or sometimes he uses metaphor or imagery. What's the deal with that? I mean, is Jesus just trying to be difficult and elusive? Is he trying to drive us crazy? When we remember that Jesus is Jewish, we might gain some perspective here. If you've ever participated in a Passover Seder, a ritual feast that happens at the beginning of the Jewish holiday of Passover, then you might be familiar with the four questions, which are typically recited by the youngest participant in the beginning of the Seder. According to one professor of Jewish history, the custom at many a Seder table is to have the youngest child recite the famous four questions, which open the evening's dialogue. Often the child, still several years away from knowing how to read, recites from memory, having learned them by heart in preschool. The performance is more than a moment of pride for parents and grandparents. It is a taste of the spirit of Judaism, which the child will only come to appreciate years later. Judaism is a religion that not only permits, but encourages us to ask questions. Because things are sacred does not mean that we have forfeited the right to think for ourselves. Now, the world-renowned physicist Isaac Rabi, who was a Jewish man, 
used to attribute his success to his mother. He recalled that when he would come home from school as a child, his mother would never ask, what did you learn today? Instead, she would say, did you ask any good questions? You see, in Judaism, to be without questions is not a sign of faith, but a lack of depth. We have that classic Sunday school joke that whenever a question is asked, the safe and right answer is always Jesus. And it's a bit of church humor, and boy, are we so funny. But it exposes something. It exposes something that while Judaism may be a faith that encourages questions, many of us have been ingrained with a Christian faith that both demands and promises answers. The Bible has been presented to us as if it contains all the answers to life's questions and Jesus as the ultimate answer man. But this just simply isn't the case. It's not to say that there are no answers or that no answers can be found in these sources, but rather to emphasize that doling out answers is not the point. This is hard for us. We like answers. We seek certainty. Answers about who's in and who's out, what's right and what's wrong, they give us a clear sense of power, control, and security. All the things that we seek externally in order to bring a sense of stability to our lives. Now, for the Pharisees, Jesus' choices and behaviors seem to rub up against their neat and tidy categories around power, control, and security. And so they come looking for answers. Interestingly enough, they came to nail him down, which we ultimately know only happens once in this story, not figuratively, but quite literally, physically. And isn't that revealing of our human tendencies? When we can't get the answers we want, we are quick to cut off and dismiss even violently if necessary. Jesus is not harsh in his response. He does not condemn them or call them out. Instead, he begins talking about a bridegroom and some fabric and wineskins. And so I'm going to look at that again. I'm going to read one more time just his response in verses 34 through 39 if you'd like to follow along. This is what he says. Okay, Jesus answered. Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for they say, the old is better. Jesus here at Levi's party masterfully sidestepped the religious leader's need for answers. And instead, ask a question, and then gives them imagery to work with. Imagery that was likely right in front of them. The imagery of a party and feasting, garments and wineskins full of wine, all the elements of the banquet at Levi's that they were witnessing in real time. In his response and his use of imagery, Jesus doesn't appear to condemn the old or the new. 
He doesn't take sides or clearly define who's in or who's right. But instead, by using the stuff of life right in front of them, he asks them to explore a totally new set of questions. Perhaps he's saying something like, who cares who eats together? The real question is if the bridegroom is present, and if so, it's time to feast. Old fabric or new, old wineskins or new, both have their place and time. The more important question is, what's your place and time so that you might discern the best material or container? In his book titled Jesus is the Question, Martin Copenhaver says this, easy answers can give us a sense of finality. By entertaining questions, God has a chance to change us. Answers can be offered as a conclusion. Questions are an invitation to further reflection. It is telling that the word question contains the word quest. That is, a question sends you on a journey and often in search of something valuable. By choosing not to answer but instead create more questions, Jesus is inviting them and us on a quest, on a search for something valuable. Jesus' way of communication here is sometimes compared to what's known as myutics. This word myutic comes from the Greek root maya, meaning midwife. According to Merriam-Webster, a teacher who uses myutic methods can be thought of as an intellectual midwife who assists students in bringing forth ideas and conceptions previously latent in their minds. I love that. Jesus, the midwife who is apparently less interested in giving straight answers and more interested in coming alongside to help us birth something new from within. Jesus was a master Jewish teacher, and more than anything, he was and he is interested in the transformation of our very being. Now, at first glance, Jesus' response in Luke 5 feels unsatisfactory and confusing. But what happens if we let these images engage our imagination, pull us out of our duality, blur our nice and, neat, nice and tidy um, lines? Oh, guys. <laughs> and begin to work us. What if instead of approaching Jesus as someone we need to figure out and nail down, we received his life and his words as an invitation to transformation, an invitation to move beyond our limiting beliefs and paradigms? What if we began to view Jesus himself not as the answer, but as the question? How would that change things? What would we seek Jesus for if not for answers? Perhaps friendship? Companionship? I mean, when you consider Jesus in this way, he becomes the most amazing therapist, spiritual director, midwife, and friend all rolled into one. That's actually a lot more appealing to me than someone who just tells me what to do and points out where I'm right or wrong. If we are made in the image of God, and we are, what would it mean for us to live more like a question than an answer? How might viewing Jesus as the question shift the purpose of this space and this community? And what happens when we come together? 
And how would it impact us and how we approach the, us as the church, how we approach the wider world? Jesus, as the question actually really resonates for me when I consider what it might mean to participate in and with the divine mystery. But for many of us, this is a major shift. This is so counter to what we've been given and to how we actually live. This isn't our default, and so it requires some intentionality in our lives. What shifts or movements might be necessary for us in living this out? Now, I'm sure there's more than this, but I'm going to suggest two that stand out to me as I consider today's passage. The first is this. A movement from outside in to inside out living. Jesus knew that the way that we interact with our external world, right, the ways in which we reach for power and control and security, our need for answers, that this is all linked to our internal world. What drives our need to ask who is in and what is right is the underlying questions of, am I in? Am I all right? Now, I'm going to make what I believe is a pretty safe assumption that we all can relate to carrying around these questions with us. Am I in? Am I all right? In other words, in other words am I acceptable? Am I enough? When we do not receive and embrace our God-given identity as the beloved, we'll always reach for what's outside in an attempt to bring security in. And so we must make a shift from outside in to inside out living. Michael Singer and his book, The Untethered Soul, which has been a, a bit of a game changer read for me this summer, explains this, that in the name of attempting to hold the world together, you are really just trying to hold yourself together. And so you have to break the habit of thinking that the solution to your problem is to rearrange things outside. I'm going to say that again. In the name of attempting to hold the world together, you are really just trying to hold yourself together. So you have to break the habit of thinking that the solution to your problem is to rearrange things outside. I believe that we all have some internal identity work to do, and I actually believe that we always will. I think it's just part of our ongoing journey and a way in which we will allow Jesus to companion us over time. Some of us have narratives about God and about how God views us that need to be rewritten in order to free us up to live this way. And I'll just say again about the peacemaking pathway, I'll plug again, this is the first thing we actually talk about when we're together is our identity. Everything hinges on how we understand our identity. And in the spiritual journey, when our identity starts anywhere else but in the place of the beloved, things get weird fast we will quickly and automatically reach for what's outside in order to feel like we're okay right here. So we must move from outside in to inside out living. Okay, here's the second movement. From fasting to feasting. Now I imagine in this room there's a varied level of experiences in terms of fasting as a spiritual discipline. And just FYI, I'm not talking about something like the belly proof diet, if you know what that is, or like where you use intermittent fasting to lose weight. 
It's not what the Pharisees were referring to either. I mean fasting as an actual spiritual practice. Now, I always loved what the late Dallas Willard would say, that we choose to fast from food so that we might feast on Jesus. Not to prove our holiness or our devotion to God, but because there is abundance available to us. There is abundance available to us, and fasting is a practice that can refocus our attention back to the source. We fast in order to feast on Jesus. But unfortunately, right, practices like this can tend to be less about feasting and more about proving something or earning something or sometimes even like punishing ourselves. Here these guys are in Luke 5, these Pharisees. Literally, I mean, think about this. They're literally standing on the periphery of a perfectly good party where Jesus is the guest of honor. And what are they doing? They're spending their time asking questions about fasting. Those are some legit party poopers. (laughs) Can you imagine, I mean, just imagine the level of anxiety that they must have carried around the incredibly heavy burden they had taken on of getting everything right, doing everything perfectly, and needing everyone else around them to do the same. I think we can imagine it, actually. I think this is how many of us are living our lives currently. In an attempt to create security in what feels like a very insecure world, we have pieced together rules and regulations, ways that things should be said and done, what's right and wrong, who's in and out. And in multiple ways, we find ourselves on the periphery of a perfectly good party, unable to see anything but the person or the situation that we feel the need to control in order to calm our own internal anxiety. But what if Jesus' desire is not for us to get it right, but to get it light? I mean, do you think that in some ways Jesus was looking back at these Pharisees and trying to say to them, hey guys, lighten up. Not in a dismissive way, in a compassionate, I've come to give you life to the full, my yoke is easy and my burden is light kind of way. Jesus' economy is one of abundance, not scarcity. And this some of the brilliance of his response to them. Instead of engaging their scarcity, he uses the stuff of life that is right in front of them to say, guys, there is more. There's so much more. Why don't you sit down and enjoy the feast? How would our days and our lives look differently if we anticipated God's abundance? If we began to pay attention to the, just the stuff of our lives, looking for signs of God and goodness. But to do that, we have to move from a mindset of scarcity to abundance, from fasting to feasting. Now, one of the things that's interesting for me as a pastor, I feel like lately I've been giving some pastor confessions. So here's another one is that if we tend to view Jesus as the answer, then what often happens is that sentiment gets carried over to the church and to pastors. And then we look to church and to pastors to provide answers. In fact, often what we talk about, I think, when we talk of um, church shopping, is really the process of finding a church that either has the same answers that I already have, or finding a church that can give me answers and validate, or make sense of like what I I already believe. 
What if it were the norm to look at a church website and instead of a bunch of statements of belief, it listed the top questions that the church is currently asking and wrestling with and an invitation to come and wrestle with those two. That is intriguing to me. However, this is not the norm. And unfortunately, in our tendency toward outside in living and our scarcity mindsets, the role of church pastor and parishioner can become, in my opinion, a bit wonky. You only need to listen to one episode of The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill to know exactly what I'm talking about. One of the tensions that I've honestly felt as a pastor in this season is how to best handle the never-ending barrage of social crises. We're living in what feels like such a a heavy and tension-filled time, constantly confronted with divisiveness, uncertainty, and oftentimes very, very complex and layered issues. And it's not uncommon, right, for people to reach out looking for guidance and for answers. I believe that there is a very fine line, a very fine line for us as pastors in how we steward these kinds of conversations. If I'm inherently seen as the person with answers, how does that impact our conversation or the expectations inherent or the power dynamics? It was out of this tension that I invited the very wise and gifted question asker, Kristen Wright, if she would create a guide for our community. Is Kristen, is Kristen here? Where are you at? There she is. Okay, yeah, do that again. Okay, Kristen, if you don't know who Kristen is, Kristen taught in July and she's an elder here. And she is one of the best, best, best question askers I know. And she's, she, she's good at it and she respects it. I feel like Kristen respects the power of a good question. In late spring, early summer, I was just in a hard place and she knew it and she sent me an email one day and was like, hey, I've you know, been thinking about you and praying for you, and here's some questions that are bubbling up. And then she says, take what's yours and leave the rest. Kind of see what stirs, and those are yours. And whatever doesn't, you can let those go. Those aren't questions for you. And I took some time to sit with those, and it was so rich. It was so rich to go in and to explore what was going on and to allow Jesus to companion me in that way. So I asked Kristen if she might spend some time putting together a reflective guide, a series of questions to sit with when something major happens and you want to go into answer mode. You know what I'm talking about? Like whether it's in your kind of personal world or in the wider world and you suddenly are like, Ah, like I need, I need to know what's right. I need to figure out where I line just so that I can like feel like I'm somewhere and I don't have to feel this tension anymore. And she really did a masterful job. Um, actually, I printed it out here. Not that you're really going to be able to see it very well. Um, it was specifically made with social crisis and traumatic events, events in mind. But I think you could pick this up anytime you're just feeling unsettled or anxious as a way to go inward with Jesus. So FYI, if you've never been on it, our website is denverchurch.org. And if you will scroll down on the very first page that comes up, you'll find a tab that says self-care resources. That's right. If you've never checked it out, we have some great resources right there, including now, when you click on that, something titled Social Crisis Reflection Guide. Will you guys make a note right now to like get on this later or come back to this this week? I promise that this will serve you. So thank you, Kristen. Get to know Kristen. Go to Coffee with Kristen. She'll ask you like 20 really good questions. 
Okay, as we close today, I wanted to share one quick story from one of the um, books that I enjoyed looking at for this morning that's called Jesus is the Question. And in it, the author tells the story of a friend being in the class of a legendary professor of theology who completed his final lecture to a standing ovation. The professor picked up his notes and he put them in his folder and he walked out of the lecture hall. And at the doorway, he turned around and faced the applauding students. And the class fell silent, waiting for a parting word. And the professor looked back at his class and said, just remember, Jesus is the question to all of your answers. And with that, he left. And so, friends, may we remember and actually practice living in a way that reflects this. Jesus is the question to all of our answers. Let's pray together. God, we confess our anxiety. We are anxious. We're living in very anxious times. Help us to rearrange how it is that we tend to relate with and to you. God, would we pursue freedom that comes with the way that you want to work in us and transform us. Would we let go of the answers and be open to the questions. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.